1: I think the last two years have helped people develop some pretty nasty habits in terms of return expectations. I mean, there's been times in history where stocks have just gone sideways or, you know, it's just been, you know, a small return or just the dividend. So making money while investing is certainly not a right. And I'm very concerned about what happens if we just kind of have this soupy macro backdrop and nobody wants to really help risk assets. The Fed hasn't hiked high enough to really hurt them and we just kind of go sideways.
0: Hi and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatillo. Researching individual stocks can take a lot of time. In one particular case, there were 8,599 news articles since January 1 this year that would have taken 860 hours to read. Add to that some historical data and you would have needed 1.32 years of reading to catch up and see the subtle shift in the way that Netflix was spoken of, and that was prior to its fall. How much information do you need and how can you... It at your fingertips. Hello, Tyler. Hey, Phil. Thank you for having me. Tyler Tucci is the head of research at Cinerai. Do you do a lot of reading?
1: I certainly don't do as much reading as our AI does. And uh, I've found over the last, you know, 10 years of my career, the reading list has changed. When you come in, you read, you know, your liars, pokers, your fortunes, formulas, the, the starter kit. And you may not understand everything, but I think that is a very important place to start. And then you go about your career for about five years and come back to those books and go, oh, this makes a whole lot more sense now. These days, I find myself reading more, more technically-based things as opposed to, you know, I would call it fun finance reading, your market wizards, your things like that. I just did pick up A Man for All Markets by Edward Thorpe. I loved Fortune's Formula. It's one of my favorite, favorite books. I, I highly recommend it to all your listeners.
0: Which one's that? Uh, just repeat the name again so we can. Um, I'll put a, a link to it in the show notes and blog post.
1: Fortune's Formula. I think it's a great read. It's it's very, very interesting.
0: Why is that? Um, what's a key takeaway from it?
1: It's how to think about and how Edward Thorpe thought about position sizing and risk taking and, you know, blackjack and how it basically was able to go from counting cards playing blackjack to trading stocks. And basically, it is the betting system and the risk management side of investing which I actually think is more important than you know going in there and executing the trades.
0: Yeah okay fantastic. So tell us about your background in finance. Well, how did you get here and um, I believe you started in sales and trading at uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland?
1: I did. I came through the sales and trading program so it was uh, you know a great opportunity to see all different sides of sales and trading different asset classes, different roles within those asset classes. By the time I left, I was an interest rate strategist focusing on the front end of the interest rate curve, among other things. My area of expertise has always kind of been like the Fed and how to trade the front end, basically, Euro dollars through five years based on you know what they're doing. From there, I moved to the real money buy side. I was the trader of basically G10 government paper, and then I also did some FX-related cash management stuff. After that, I launched my own fund in 2019 or 2018. God, it's it's already four years on. And I learned so much. Unfortunately, my performance was not good enough. I was self-funding. And you know, when people say I launched a fund, I, you know, it's an actual fund, 3C1 rather. So it was obviously quite expensive to maintain and the operational costs were pretty intense. And the performance was just not good enough. And I had a positive year, but it has to be quite positive, especially when you know you're a new manager, you're trying to raise money. The easier allocations are for people with track records and people who have, you know, some institutional support. So it was the greatest learning experience of my life, but unfortunately that came to an end. Not long after, though, I was introduced through a mutual friend to Cinerai. And we've had probably two years of, of really amazing conversations. I think um, the guys over there are more from a tech background than a markets background. And I, you know, I'm very much from a markets background. So I think the merge of the two has been very, very interesting. Travis and I, our CEO do a show every morning. And uh, I think the value we add is we attack it from both sides. We attack it from, Here's what a data scientist sees, and here's what a markets person sees, and you know, let's see if we can test and find some agreement in our thesis. And I think that's exciting, as opposed to just kind of making something up. We're really testing whether or not we're delivering alpha, or just getting lucky, or you know, what the combination of the two is. So I think that's pretty exciting, and that's how I ended up uh, here.
0: I think it's pretty interesting, isn't it, that um, when you get a multidisciplinary approach to anything, the ideas come from both sides, you know, because I've seen that. It's a big part of fintech startups is that you've got someone who's really good with data and then someone else who's really good with markets. And I'm sure you're challenged all the time with um, the kind of stupid questions that they're asking that um, you wouldn't normally be asking yourself.
1: And the other way too, right? I mean, I, you know, have gotten a... uh an intermediate statistics degree in the last three months, because we do do some pretty rigorous testing and analysis of our model output. So we'll take our model output and then we'll run a whole bunch of different studies on that output. So, you know, we're generating something completely different and adding value, even if you already have access to our data and our platform, we're then taking the next step with it. So I, I think... Yeah, I'm sure him and I both talk past each other at certain points, but the combination of the two, I think, is what makes this project really, really interesting.
0: Mm. The topic of the day is inflation, and you've got a lot of experience with inflation because of inflation's relationship with interest rates, which is where you've obviously got a lot of your background and where you've got a lot of experience in it. So what's your view of the Fed's interest rate response? Where are we at
1: the moment? As of today, we're, we're officially at the point where the market fights the Fed because the market in general is thinking the Fed's going to go too far and break things and send us into a recession. My thoughts on that is for the last 70 years, every time the Fed has had to hike to destroy inflation, they've had to hike through the rate of inflation. I don't actually think that this Fed has the stomach, unless inflation comes down meaningfully, unless at the end of the year, we're back at three and a half percent. Sure, they could hike through a three and a half percent inflation rate in a pretty short order. But if we're hanging out around you know five, six percent inflation, I'm not sure that they have the guts to really tighten like that to five or six percent, You know a five or six percent funds rate. In 2018, everything went crashing down well before we got there. So I'm not very sure that They are going to be able to get it there, especially because the connection between U.S. rates and the global economy. Japan's still at zero rates. They're doing a good job insulating their market for now, but they own most of their market. The ECB, I mean, this is pretty much an unadulterated disaster.
0: That's the um, European Central Bank, isn't it?
1: Yes, the European Central Bank. I mean, it's not going well. They're trying to fight to get back to a zero policy rate, not even a positive one, just zero. And the euro is headed straight lower. And that's largely a function of the stakeholders of monetary and fiscal policy in Europe are not the same people, right? So it's very hard to get an agreement when what's good for one is not necessarily good for all.
0: Because the difference, sorry, I just wanted to break this down a bit. The monetary and the fiscal policy, one's conducted by the central bank and the other is the government and how much money that they're spending. Is that the case?
1: Yeah. So the ECB controls monetary policy for all of Europe while each country controls their fiscal policy. So generally in the US or countries where it's one central bank for all, the policies are generally somewhat in agreement or at least working towards the same goal and working in tandem. In this case, you can have, you know, it's almost like random, the juxtaposition between the two. And in this case, widening spreads, and by that I mean the German 10-year bund is the, I guess, the, the standard bearer or the comp for European interest rates. And the spread between that and peripheral debt, i.e. Italy and Portugal, is something that is looked at as a way of of looking at funding stress. And the minute the ECB opened their mouth about hiking rates, spreads started to widen out and they've already had to backstop that. They've announced a plan to buy basically periphery debt with the proceeds of the French and German debt. So they already have to act to close these spreads they're not even at the starting block yet. They've signed up for the race. That's going to be very hard for the Fed to meaningfully tighten policy way through them while that's going on. And the other thing is, as the Fed tightens policy, the interest on the debt increases significantly. I mean, from 1% to 3% is a pretty big move. At some point in the future, you'll have to start issuing debt to service the debt, and that's when things start to get a little sketchy. And finally, I guess... Mortgages. Mortgage rates have almost doubled in the last six months. And the way the U.S. property market works, I really don't think that significantly higher mortgage rates will be stood for by the authorities. There's a certain level at which I think they'll decide that it's too painful and, and have to stop. So those are a whole bunch of headwinds to you know a significantly higher funds rate personally, I kind of think this ends in stagflationary territory. If I had to put some numbers on it, say CPI is five, the funds rates at four, and the next four to five years of forward returns and equities and bonds are flat, or you're just getting the carry on the bonds. But as we were talking before we started, I think the last two years have helped people develop some pretty nasty habits in terms of return expectations. I mean, there's been times in history where Stocks have just gone sideways or, you know, it's just been, you know, a small return or just the dividend. So making money while investing is certainly not a right. And I'm I'm very concerned about, you know, what happens if we just kind of have this soupy macro backdrop and nobody wants to really help risk assets. The Fed hasn't hiked high enough to really hurt them. And we just kind of go sideways.
0: Yep. I always like looking historically at what's happened in the past and um, in the the last inflationary period, which was really in the early 80s in the US, and I think it was Paul Volcker, who was the Jerome Powell of the day, actually had the stomach to put up interest rates to a high enough level where it would crush inflation. But of course, it brought along a big, big recession. But I don't think these days anyone has got the stomach for that kind of action anymore.
1: And the other thing too is that when Volcker got to work, things were already pretty bad. The jobless rate was already heading significantly higher. In this instance, the Fed slammed the brakes on a smoking hot real estate market, an equity market at all time highs, you know, a pretty healthy economy that they're destroying. They're not making bad worse. They're making good bad, which is, you know, where I kind of base my expectations for flattish forward returns on. Okay,
0: so let's talk about Cinerai. Now, what's really interesting about this is, like I was saying at the beginning of the podcast, is that um, Cinerai is crunching a lot of numbers and looking at a lot of data. Now, I talked about one particular aspect of it, which is looking at articles. So that's obviously something to do with sentiment. So there are six health factors that uh, Sinari is looking at in the data and the the numbers that are being crunched here. And I think it's worthwhile looking at these because it's also a way that um, beginners can start to think about how to look at companies, look at stocks and the kind of factors that affect the price. So over to you, Tyler.
1: So, I'll explain kind of our, our process broadly and then drill down into each factor. So Cinerai and our platform is Felico, which is the platform that users can sign up and get our data as well. So Felico has these six health factors and the process is, is basically the following. So our AI reads pretty much anything written on the searchable internet, plus a few things that you know are less searchable.
0: Is that like what journalists are writing about a particular company, for example, across the whole range of media outlets?
1: Yeah, it can be quantitative or qualitative. So if a CEO comes out and revises a number specifically, gives a quantitative measure, our AI will adjust to that quantitative adjustment. But yes, the AI also takes into account who wrote it, how it contributes across our six health factors. And then we standardize all of the articles to basically give a score between negative one and one, which shows the overall view of that given health factor. So we have, we have six different health factors, like I mentioned. If you are a fan of MBA style studies, Porter's five forces, things like this, these principles, you'll see some familiarities in here. The first one And my favorite one personally is earnings power. So the health factor is called earnings power, but it really uh, is comprised of anything that has to do anywhere that the AI read having to do with costs, revenue, profitability, new products, partnerships, and returning capital to shareholders. I've also found personally that if you look at where this sits on earnings week versus the price It actually has generated some interesting observations about outsized moves. So for example, our earnings factor completely turned down months before the last uh, Netflix earnings disaster, for example. On the bullish side, actually, we were able to catch some upside in KC, which is Kingsoft. That's a Chinese technology company. Because on the other hand, since March, the earnings power metric had just been going straight up into a sideways equity price. So for me, that's exciting because that's something you can systematize. And, you know, I've kind of turned it into my own personal earnings betting system. The second and probably, you know, I would argue second most important factor we have is competition. And basically the AI is reading for anything that has to do with competitive forces, changes in pricing schemes, changing customer relationships, if bargaining power is changing, if market leadership is changing. These are all things that the AI will then synthesize, standardize, and then score. And then there's a couple more here. I won't give everyone everyone because I encourage everyone to go just check out the website or check out Travis and I's show in the morning.
0: Have a look at the details online, yes.
1: Yeah, but the last one I would give is management. And I think this one's interesting because it's picked up things like our management score turned up for Twitter right before Elon Musk made the buyout offer, for example. And likewise, it actually turned down in Tesla. Similarly, if you looked back at the data, we had a very low management score in Amazon when Jeff Bezos stepped down and turned over to new management. So I definitely think separately, they're powerful. Together, they're also very powerful. Personally, the one I use the most is earnings power. But you know, we have our, I'll call them our core four, which is earnings power, management, reputation, and competition. And the other two are... Systemic and ESG. There are some people who have pushed back on using ESG as an indicator. I was one of those people. But what Travis found, and I think is very interesting, is that our ESG measure also picks up, I think of it more as a measure of company goodwill. It's able to see basically if a company is very profitable, they will have more money for projects like ESG and things like that. So it's not just a measure of is this company green. It's do they have basically free cash to invest in, you know, green initiatives, which has actually been a somewhat positive, positive signal.
0: Well, that's a pretty interesting indicator that um, a company has the freedom to invest in, say, some green projects or um, environmental, social projects, which means that they do have the money sitting there.
1: Yeah. And I thought that was very interesting because as someone who kind of dismissed ESG as a, you know, a market timing factor, let's say that it was descriptive of something else was very interesting and that's why i share it so before you uncheck the esg box just please keep that in mind and then the last one is we measure for systemic which is just like the macro our overall systemic indicator is pretty poor at the moment it's pretty negative because we do gross this up and look at it on a market level as well and yeah as i was telling you before you know as someone who has made a lot of their money on the long side being bullish expecting fed policy to shift dovishly when things get a little hairy. Our forecasts are really nasty. If I had to make a bullish, if I had to use Felico to make a bullish call, the one we're probably most interested here is in biotech. Having this
0: kind of data at your fingertips, I think is so important because For people who are new to investing, they get um, overwhelmed with emotions because they're seeing the movement of their actual money on a screen going up and down every day and they're watching CNBC and they're seeing so many commentators and talking heads and you're deluged with this kind of information. But what it sounds like you're trying to do is to systemise the approach so that you can take the emotions out of it and just look at the raw data and make investment decisions on that data. It's really important for investors to understand this, isn't it?
1: Yes, I think that for a new investor, having a repeatable process is probably one of the most important things that I could recommend because people have had you know good one, three, six months. you know, they got hot, they had you know great returns, but it wasn't based on on a process or a framework or anything. They just happened to randomly place the right sequence of trades and they let you keep the money for that. So there's nothing wrong with that. But on a longer term basis, You really need to think about, okay, what does this money need to do for me? You know, am I trying to pay for a new car short term? Am I trying to pay for somebody's education longer term? What liquidity needs am I going to have? Can I lock this money up for a while? But having a process and thinking about what you need your money to do is just so imperative if you're going to be managing your own money.
0: There's many people that would be listening who are going to be sitting on a lot of paper losses right at the moment, and your forecast is bleak. Do you think it's better for people to, you know, we're not giving any personal advice here, we can't give personal advice, but um, so many times people have lost money by selling when markets have turned bad. Do you feel like a longer term approach might be a better way of viewing things, despite people's own liquidity issues, as you pointed out?
1: I think it's important to know whether what you have is an investment or a trade, and you need to know that beforehand. I think there's a lot of people who I'm long for a trade and then it turns into an investment. I mean, how many, you know, I'll raise my own hand on that one, right? Like, yeah, okay, I'll double down here instead of stopping out. So I think it's important to, before you enter, you need to think about, okay, do I think this is a good five-year idea? Is it a good five-minute idea? And you need to stick to whatever that is. So if your five-minute idea is going wrong, yeah, you're probably going to have to lock in the loss on that. If you bought something because you think, for example, the next 10 years in biotech looks great, if you bought a biotech company and you're down 15% on it, I don't really think you've let the story play out. So if you bought it for five years, then hold it and that's fine and that's the intention you had. So as long as all the positions you have are intentional, I think that's, that's what's important. So if you have dead weight in your portfolio and you don't think it's coming back, yeah, I would recommend thinking about decreasing the size of that position and allocating to something else, a better idea you have. But it's important to know what you own and how long you own it for and why you own it.
0: Okay, well, let's get to biotech that you referred to a moment ago. And that's one of the things I like. I got a little bit of a shock when you said biotech because I know how long the stories in biotech take to play out. If you don't understand biotech, you don't understand the amount of time that's involved, the regulatory requirements, the testing. And we're talking you know up to a decade and more for a story to play out. So tell us about biotech and why you see it as an area that might possibly be something to be bullish about
1: i mean it's not really up to me and that's the interesting thing is it's felico data that's just so unbelievably bullish and we are more bullish on certain components of the xbi the xbi is the us-based biotech etf every holding in there is like one percent or less so you do get a broad diversification but that's sometimes a problem. Sometimes if you have a view on a single stock, you want to be anti-diversified. You want to be just long or short that one if your conviction is high. So it's really you know a function of Felico data that's just flagged a outsized number of companies as for potential upsides. And if I could be more specific without giving tickers, it is not the acquirers of the technology. It is the innovators. So it's the smaller companies that we think We've had a decent bear market in biotech. The balance sheets are in decent shape, so we should see there's enough fresh cash there for some acquisitions. So I think that's what is picking up and has in mind, but you know, like we said at the outset, that AI reads a lot more than I do. So I leave the big decisions to it on stuff like this.
0: Well, let's have a talk about Felico and Cinerai. A new user coming to have a look at the website. What are they presented with and what is your offering?
1: So when they log in, they'll see ranked by time frame some of our top ideas by highest upside that doesn't mean highest conviction but it's an interesting starting point because personally I'll go through and I'll look and see if there's a theme for example on on fed day we had that large squeeze higher the list of buys were all stocks that I would consider about as speculative as you can get you know squeeze candidates things that short covering rally as opposed to real buying So you can start to form a view once you step back, and that's my favorite way to use it is by looking at all the data. Sure, you can go in and point and click on some of our best ideas and do them as one-offs, but when you're taking a mathematical approach like we are and a a stats-based approach, I think you want as many cracks as possible. So I like using more data, not less data. From the platform, you'll be able to look at any ticker, our six health scores, the top and bottom five contributors to the health scores so basically what the company's doing right what they're doing wrong we also have time-based price forecasts so you know you can look at anywhere between one and 12 weeks and we'll tell you for you know i think it's the 1500 stocks on our coverage list we'll tell you where we think those are going to be and we've definitely seen some success and some outsized calls you know i think that's pretty exciting and really our platform is for everybody. If you are a day trader, there are ways to use it. If you are somebody's registered investment advisor and you need to kind of put a larger quantitative view together on your portfolio, you can look at all the health factors and you know kind of get a feel for that. If you like to trade earnings like I do, we have something for that. It can be a platform that is used for trading. It can be a platform that's used for research that's why we're excited about it. I think it's got institutional applications. We've talked to some hedge funds about using our data. It's got retail applications. We want people to sign up on Felico. We want them to use the data and we want them to do their own studies on our data like we do. And I think that's the real value is when you take our output and then you can start using it in your investment framework. You know, You don't have to just blindly blindly follow Felico completely, it's just another great tool to have. So when you're looking at, you know, I look at positioning, I look at pure sentiment, I would say. And then, you know, I kind of look at this, I'm a technical analyst as well. I kind of think about these as, as technical indicators almost, you know, it's an oscillator between minus one and one. And based on how those move against price, you actually can generate tradable signals. So, I mean, I think- you know, we've almost given too much because there's so much on the platform. You can go by single name, you can go by sector, you can back it up and look at, you know, how we view the whole market. So that's why I work with these guys and I'm here to tell you guys about it is I think this is different than your general, here's a one factor sentiment indicator, right? Or, you know, something like that. And those definitely have their place, but this is a bit different. And our CEO, he's a quant, right? And not just that, He built this AI not for markets. He just realized that it could trade markets as well. I mean, there's lots of applications for this. It is a tech product that just happens to have markets applications. And that's what I think is interesting. I think there's so many instances of people want to beat the market, so they just goal seek something. This is not goal seeked. This is AI that learns. It could be doing a bunch of different things, but we just happen to realize that it's a pretty good trader too on top of everything else.
0: Okay, so here's a question without notice then. When you're talking to the the tech guys, what's a question say that they've asked you that's made you think back to your own first principles as an investment analyst?
1: Something that's made me challenge my own beliefs? Yeah, I'd say that. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. I mean, first and foremost, it's nice that when he runs his analysis, it says what it says. So the biggest thing for me is this helps eliminate the human bias and my human bias. You know, the biggest takeaway has been, there's been so many instances where we're testing our output. So I'll trade it in an E-Trade account, like pretty small size, just because we have a whole bunch of other grand plans for this stuff. We have some other financial services products we think we can, you know, our data lends to. So we're very much actively testing this. We want to trade this. We're not just trying to hand this to somebody else and say, here you go, you trade it. We think we can trade it. We think we can make money. We're just sharing it. So I think that's the biggest thing is just to have faith in the model. I came into this just like anybody else would, excited but skeptical. I see about as good as it gets in terms of as a data scientist. So that's what really excited me is that, you know, it's not just a bunch of uh, macro tourists sitting around talking about whatever it is. We have real data, we do real statistical analysis. And like I just told you with biotech, like that thing overrules me, right? And that's the thing I've learned is, you know, I've started to really trust this thing. And I've seen some, some crazy red to green moves when I thought things were left for dead, like all kinds of things that have really made me believe in this. That's
0: great. And um, so we'll put all the links in the episode notes in the blog post and we'll also put some links to a couple of your videos as well because uh, I've watched a couple of the videos as well. They're great viewing and a lot to be learned from there. So Tyler Tucci, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road.